To infinity and beyond! So enjoy these beautiful creatures as they soar into your hearts on their flights. Their flights of wonder. We're incredibly proud of the fantasy which builds on the creativity, innovation, and artistry, which are the hallmarks of not only the Walt Disney Cruise Line, but of the Walt Disney Company. To hear how the story goes, <laughs> go ahead and push my nose. W, w Radio, your information station. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the WW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World Information Station. I am your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 615, and I'm here once again not only to help you have the best Disney vacation experience when you go to the parks, but I also want to bring you some of the Disney magic wherever you are with the podcast, live video broadcasts on Facebook every Wednesday night, videos, blog, books, audio tours, and more, whether it's your first time visiting or you've been hundreds of times, if you're planning a vacation or love, the history, details, secrets, and stories, there's something in the show for you because each week I'm going to take you from the parks to the screens and everything in between. And if you're a new listener, thank you, welcome. Please go back and check out some or all the past episodes for interviews, top tens, reviews, and more. You can subscribe to the podcast and Apple Podcasts or Spotify and find everything else at www.radio.com. So I'm going to continue my conversation with Joe Lancicero, former Senior Vice President of Creative at Walt Disney Imagineering, as we journey to Tokyo Disney Sea, discuss the SEA, and the unique take there on the Tower of Terror. We'll also discuss what almost became of the Muppets in the Disney parks, Howard Stark and Walt Disney, Marvel, technology, his work on designing and reimagining the ships of Disney Cruise Line and more. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World Trivia question of the week, and I'll pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. Then stay tuned to the end of the show for information, updates, your voicemails, and more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. So I'm excited to continue our conversation with Joe Lancicero, former Senior Vice President of Creative at Walt Disney Imagineering. Joe, I want to first thank you and welcome you back to the show. Wow, it's great to be back and thank you for welcoming me back a second time. Well, we had so much that we wanted to cover and really we we left off, I think, sort of just scratching the surface of Mystic Manor. Uh, when I said that we could talk for hours, we probably could, but also mm -hmm. the the underlying SEA Society of Explorers and Adventure storyline. And I want to revisit that briefly and go back really to sort of where it all began, which also happens to be my favorite park. Um, and, and a culturally, again, we talked a lot about culture on the cultural differences and the culturally different take that you and Imagining had to take on one of the 
you know, new classics, as it were, of attractions created by Imagine for the Disney parks, the, the Tower of Terror. Um, again, a different way, like Mystic Manor, a different way of telling sort of a, a haunted mansion story. Here you had a different way of having to tell a Tower of Terror story because the Twilight Zone TV show itself was not something that played or was popular or really was well known in Japan at all. Yeah, exactly. Well, there were, <clears throat> there were two reasons for revisiting the backstory. Uh, one, as you just mentioned, was the fact that um, the Japanese did not grow up in the 1950s and 60s watching Rod Sterling and the, the Twilight Zone. So that immediately meant there was no, you know, there was no affinity or understanding of that. Um, so that quickly went, it was taken off the table. Um, but second was um, the location of the attraction in the park and being true to the location, the story, the bigger storytelling of the park and um, and of course the, the the parcel of land that we we were given to to build this on was in American Waterfront. Um, in fact, they had looked at in uh, doing a couple of different attractions on the site where we ultimately built Tower Tower of Terror. Um, back when the Muppets were being looked at uh, early on before Disney bought the Muppets. Um, and in fact, I could talk a little bit at some point about. Um, some of the work I did with the Henson Group. This was back in the in the very early '90s um, when um, when Jim was still alive and Disney was looking to Michael Eisner was looking to create some kind of partnership or even buy the Muppets. And that's when the the original Muppet 3D was done at Walt Disney World, and they created that whole little Muppet area. And I actually worked with a team on developing. Um, some attractions, some ideas for there. But like I said, that's a that's another story for later because I don't want to deviate from uh, the Tower of Terror. But on that site, the original one of the ideas was to do a Muppet attractions about a New York. You know, the you know the Muppets were great because they were they could adapt to any kind of story. So they had they had done this thing for uh, the Muppets um, on a kind of a crazy gangster kind of chase thing, and it was really fun. But again, the Muppets didn't have the deep affinity with the Japanese. Um, and they wanted um, one of the one of the filters we always used when designing attractions for TDS was to try to differentiate it, the kind of the tone and the feeling from TDL, which was a Magic Kingdom part, more family, more fantasy. And from the very start, they always thought of TDS as the more adult park. It was it was designed with the thought that it was going to be a little edgier, a little more adult. So with that in mind, you know, we always thought about okay, then how how does that affect the tone and the storytelling of what we're going to be doing? Um, so they really wanted Tower of Terror. Um, the Japanese they they didn't like to take risks and. I'm actually going to contradict myself. They did take a lot of risks and try some really new things, but they were also quick to go with the tried and true, especially with technology. Um, and so <coughs> Tower of Terror was just re-engineered for Disney's California Adventure at the time. Unfortunately, and I was a little disappointed, I my favorite Tower of Terror, hands down, is the Florida version because it has that incredible moment when you know, you leave the quote shaft and you go into the fifth dimension and it moves across and then you do the drop. And I just think that's mind blowing. And I actually push, push, pushed to do that in Tokyo, 
but um, often the management at the time, um, for political reasons and other reasons, um, were listening to others in the company who convinced them that they had to go with the tried and true new technology that was being used in California. Um, but you know, that said, you make the best of what you've got, and I, I think we had a lot of fun developing the storyline and coming up the story that was, as you said, an extension of the SEA story that was established in the fortress at, at, um, at TDS. Uh, and that was the brainchild of the Kirks, Steve and um, Tim Kirk, two incredibly, incredibly talented guys, super smart. Um, and it was, it was Steve that was charged with the overall um, initial development and design of TDS. I later took over for him and, uh, and watched over the resort for another 10 years, just building on all the great work that he and his original team did. And, <clears throat> and as you know, I was on that original team way, way back when, uh, when they first started designing TDS. I was working with Steve and the team and did the initial design for Mermaid Lagoon, did the initial design for um, Arabian Coast and worked a lot of the you know, brought both of those lands to a pretty good level of development, pretty much the, the DNA and the bones of what, what, I, what I did made its way to the, the final opening day. So I felt pretty, pretty good about that. Um, so I long had uh, an association and affinity with that park. But getting back to Tower of Terror. <laughs> so we had to, um, we had to come up with a new storyline. And we love this, the story of the SEA, the the uh, Society of Explorers and Adventurers, which was indirectly connected to the Adventurers Club at Walt Disney World, but it, it didn't start there. I think it was influenced by that. Um, and so there was this base mythology about this, this group of adventurers <clears throat> who had a society and they that the Magellans was the home base for them where they would all, all meet, you know, coming from the various parts of the world and, you know, converse and and have their uh, their great meal and drink and talk about their adventures uh, around the world. So um, that's that base story was there. So like every organization and every good story, there's good guys and there's bad guys. And uh, we wanted to create a character that had uh, a lot of interesting uh, backstory about him. Um, and honestly, you know what? Um, Villains are always a little more interesting than, than the good guy. In fact, I remember back at Feature Animation, um, the, the animators that were close with Walt, the nine old men, in particular, a couple of them, Frank Thomas and, and Eric Larson, who was our, uh, our mentor, told us they always preferred to get the villain assignment because the villains were a lot more interesting, a lot more complex. They had a kind of a, a, kind of a deeper psyche you could go into and gave you more to play with when you were, were developing the character. So um, we liked that idea of creating a character that wasn't, you know, at least maybe in, uh, his, his, the, the public face was, was, was scrupulous, but underneath he was not a very honest man. And that was Harrison Hightower. <laughs> and was it, um, was it Chuck Ballou who helped sort of craft this very oh, yeah. elaborate backstory and, and even even sort of drafted a comic book that you used as sort of the, the, the foundation for a lot of the, the choices that were made, not just in story, but in design. Chuck Ballou is another one of those unsung heroes. You probably don't hear his name very much, but um, 
Chuck actually started working with me back on Mickey's Toontown um, in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, just at that point, he was just a show set designer, but and and he came from theater, and I, and I like I like Imagineers that came from theater because they already were thinking theatrically about how they were repro- approaching um, the presentation of the the visual aspects of of what we did. Um, and Chuck was not only a very skilled draftsman, but just had a brilliant mind too. And he went on to work with me on <clears throat> a number of attractions for for TDR, um, he worked on the original, when we did the, the first redo of Buzz Lightyear, but Chuck had also worked on the original Buzz Lightyear as well at Walt Disney World. Um, anyway, so yes, as you said, and Chuck was one of those, those designers that before he would put pen to paper, he had to go deep into the understanding of the story and the characters. So as you said, he actually created this, this whole we had we had brainstorms where we had kind of worked out the basic mythology and the basic story arc. You know that there was this world traveler. He collected these artifacts. Um, he often did them in a very unscrupulous way. He stole them, and uh, <clears throat> he found this one that was cursed and was took its revenge on him, and that's what caused his ultimate demise on New Year's Eve in this in this uh, elevator that that was, was uh, haunted or the, the spirit of this, this uh, artifact came in and took, took it over. Um, so that was kind of the basic storyline, but then Chuck went like really deep into, you know, who, who Harrison Hightower was, what, what, what other, you know, questionable acts that he had involved himself in, where he had traveled. He gave him a kind of a, a man Friday, kind of a, a, a butler that, that traveled with him. So, and, um, and then even, you know, went as far as to, you know, name the tribes that, that uh, the, where he got the, the Shriki and Tundu, that's the little, um, the haunted statue that, that creates all the pr- trouble for him. So, um, so yeah, so Chuck created this great mythology, great backstory, and then even went as far as you said, to make comic books to, to visualize it as well. So that was great. I mean, we, we often talk on, a, I think I mentioned this last time about, you know, the, the, the ways you apply story to an attraction, you can, you can either use a known IP. And I, in that regard, I, I say, well, it's story is narrative because you have an established narrative that you're using. That's going to guide all your, your design choices, but then you can create a subtext story. One that the guests may not necessarily follow as they would an IP where it's established, you know, the characters and such. Um, and we kind of did the same for for uh, Mystic Point with Lord Henry Mystic and and Albert the Monkey and all those characters and, and that story, but um, but with with what Chuck had done, we had this great this great um, subtext that every design choice then could go through this filter, and we could say, okay, well Harrison Hightower, <coughs> his hotel would look like. The way it looked because he had the gigantic ego he had stolen all these artifacts that of course he wanted to bring back and put on display we also took we also made a little nod to um to uh hearst um the and i can't remember what's his name the 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 famous publisher who has this crazy mansion here in california hearst castle um which i don't know i don't think he went and stole the artifacts but 
it's just a very interesting and eclectic mix of antiquities from all over the world that kind of influenced the, the look of that. So uh, in fact, I remember we took the whole design team on a little road trip when we went up to Hearst Castle and spent a couple day, days up there photographing. And then they have three or four different tours you can take, taking the tours. Um, and that really gave us a sense, you know, of also how someone's personality can come out through the way their their surroundings, <clears throat> of course, are an expression of them. And so, and that was, uh, and that gave us a great, a lot of great ideas to work off of. So, um, yeah, tip of the hat to Chuck Ballou. <laughs> well, and it's it's interesting the way that you you frame that because, like Lord Henry Mystic, you use antiques and, and artifacts to support the story of this world traveler where Lord Henry Mystic is much more whimsical where you have something somebody and, and a place that's much more foreboding and dangerous with Harrison Hightower quick tangent because that seems to be the way our conversations go anyway as you were talking <laughs> yeah. about it and, and sort of storylines <laughs> that come to be uh, I know that in Walt Disney World and I don't know if you worked on the Walt Disney World version of Tower of Terror but I know at one point there was actually consideration and I bring this up because I'm a huge Mel Brooks fan there was a consideration to use Mel Brooks and Young Frankenstein as yeah. a walkthrough concept for the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror in Walt Disney World yeah exactly yeah in fact when um I, I actually, I, I continue to work with Tim Kirk. Um, he, he works with me on some, uh, some of my consulting projects and some of the, the, the work I'm doing currently. Um, still as sh sharp and brilliant and creative as ever. Um, <clears throat> and just yeah, very interesting. He's another very interesting character. Um, that's been one of the joys of my career is to work with all these incredibly interesting and, and eccentric and uh, unusual you know, artistic people, boy, you know, and you just, you learn so much being, you know, being around them and we all kind of like pushed each other. But, um, but Tim was working on the Tower of Terror for, uh, for Walt Disney World. And he was one who was telling me that they were actually looking at <clears throat> a number of different stories early on. And one of them was going to be, you know, a young Frankenstein walk. Initially, it was going to be an actually going to be a real hotel. Um, and they were going to, you know, where you could go and you could you'd be immersed in the story and stay in the hotel. But I guess for, um, I don't know if it was for operational reasons or for, for whatever reason, they abandoned the, the real hotel idea. But then that, that grew into an attraction. Initially, it was going to be a walkthrough. And then, <clears throat> then um, they had been, been developing um, this drop tower kind of ride system independently of the Tower of Terror. And then they married the two together. And of course, then, uh, as we talked earlier, it ended up going with the, um, the Rod Sterling uh, Twilight Zone story. Yeah, and, and, and I had a chance to talk to um, both uh, Steve and Tim like way, way back when I first, I think it was yeah. like show 30 and show 54. I mean, he was sort of the, in the very early days talking a lot about Tokyo. And to the point about these incredibly immersive and more importantly, connected Backstories. Let, let's sort of fast forward a little bit to Iron Man and the Iron Man experience in Tokyo and this 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 woven backstory that's not just present in that attraction, but you craft you collectively craft this story about how Howard Stark actually knew Walt Disney and, and how the Stark Expo uh, comes into play the same way that Walt in, in 90 in, in 55 
create Tomorrowland. Talk about the 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 genesis of that story and then tying it in to those locations like Hong Kong and and Paris and uh, and DCA. Yeah. Um, well, the challenge the challenge was how to put and we and by the way, um, Hong Kong was the first park to have a Marvel attraction. Um, so we were the first that kind of had to grapple with how to introduce that IP into a Disney park. More importantly, how to introduce that IP into a Magic Kingdom park. I think um, DCA, you know, with its bigger theme being kind of more generic in terms of <clears throat> things, or even even Epcot, you know, which kind of has this future spin on it. But um, Magic Kingdom parks, you know, are about about fantasy. Although um, going back to the original Disneyland, 1955, when Walt opened the Anaheim Park, um, Tomorrowland was really a World's Fair. It was it was it took it took its cue from World's Fair. In fact, they had pavilions there, like you would find a World's Fair. Um, I think it was Alcoa Aluminum had their um, <clears throat> had a pavilion there, and um, you know, and all through the early years of Tomorrowland, you know, people like Monsanto, the um, Adventure Through Inner Space was sponsored by them, but they always had a post show or a pre show, you know, that talked about their technologies and who they were. So it had very much had that kind of expo feeling to it. Um, so with that understanding, we said, well, you know, in in the Iron Man mythology, um, Iron Man's father um, had, you know, had done this this big expo. And, and, you know, when you look at the time period, it was within the realm of logic that, you know, Walt would have known him in much the way, you know, we, we know historically Walt had a lot of interest in World's Fairs and, you know, you know, the famous story of him going to the railroad World's Fair convention in Chicago and um, <clears throat> his travels to Europe and such. So it was well within the realm of possibility that Howard Stark and Walt Disney met. And because of that, you know, we fast forward now to his son and Iron Man and, uh, you know, he's bringing his expo now his, to Disneyland and it makes sense that it would be in Tomorrowland, much the way the early Tomorrowland at Disneyland had these pavilions. So it was pretty much this, you know, him, us taking that, that core story and just kind of building on it. Um, and I think it works. I think the lo the logic of it doesn't it didn't feel out of place because we're not saying that you're going to and that's the other thing. Marvel is not a place. It's not like you can go to like Star Wars. There are planets where you go to. Marvel is a real world. Those those superheroes live in you know in New York and you know um, Stark lives in Malibu. I mean they're 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 earthbound people. They live on this planet Earth. So it's so um, you have to have a real world place for them. So the whole expo thing kind of made made sense. And, and I think it, it kind of built a foundation then for the designers um, that then went to put put attractions like for at DCA. It's it's the um, <clears throat> I think you're call, it's the uh, Avengers Academy. So, again, it's a real world place that just happens to be, you know, in a Disney park. Um, and I think, I, and I think, you know, it's, you know, there's, there's that whole suspension of disbelief that people have to have when you go into a Disney park where you, you know, you're not really <clears throat> in the jungles when you're in the jungle cruise, but it's so convincingly done that you, 
you dispense with, you know, disbelief and you just buy into it. And I think that works well too um, with these, you know, with these real world attractions when there's some context that gives them logic for being in the real world and people go in there and then you don't, you don't think twice about it. It doesn't feel odd or out of place. Well, I think Tokyo Disney Sea, which I believe is the best of the best of the best of, of what Imagineering has ever done. I, I always say this is Disney Sea is what happens when you give WDI money and say go, go do what you do best. <laughs> but there is to to your point, there is a lot of that reality and fantasy coexisting. And as you said that, I thought of places like Arabian Coast, where there is this real world believable place as opposed to someplace like mermaid lagoon which has this very unique whimsical architecture and and even before you know thinking about the attractions themselves one of the things that i i noticed in uh, tokyo disney sea which w- was something very different as as, as opposed to uh, their magic kingdom or our magic kingdom are the changing elevations and how incredibly well designed and well utilized they were. I will admit, I almost didn't even know Mermaid Lagoon was there because so much of it was wonderfully hidden below ground. Yeah. Yeah. I got, again, tip, <clears throat> tip of the hat to um, the Kirks and that original design team. And like I said, I, I want to, I feel proud that I was a part of that original design team and had a little bit to do with it, but um, they had some really great um, architects and, I can't remember his name, one of the architects that worked on it, but um, please forgive me. I'll try to remember his name. But they they were really pushing for, because actually Tokyo Disneyland was probably the most uninteresting in terms of its, its you know, kind of geographical, topographic design. Um, it was really... It was designed, and the story is it was designed more by the architects than the show designers. And mostly because Oriental Land Company kind of went shopping. They went to Disneyland. They went to Walt Disney World. And they said, oh, we like that attraction. We like that attraction. And, <clears throat> and they were put together and they, without, a, a, without a strong regard for the transition points. I, I always thought it was odd that you could be standing in Frontierland, and I could look over and see the Snow White Grotto right across the way. And it was explained to me later that was, well, you know, there were separate teams working on that park that, you know, sometimes didn't talk to each other. So they didn't know what the other team, like the Frontierland team, didn't know what the Fantasyland team was doing. <clears throat> but um, with Tokyo Disney Sea, they had a strong vision, an incredible vision. And it was also a very cohesive team where everybody was talking and you know and there was a grand vision so um like i said the kirks and the architectural team really worked to take advantage of and and really create something that um mostly for for cinematic effect most of those lands you enter in at a higher elevation so you kind of get this overview of the land or at least a portion of the land which kind of beckons you in so it's a little bit like not directly, uh, not directly analogous to like walking down Main Street, but kind of that same effect. You know, you walk down Main Street and there's the castle at the end, or the, you get to the hub and then you see the castle, or you look to the right and you see the rocket jets in 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 Tomorrowland. You look to the to the left and you see the steamboat off in the distance and the rivers of America. You know, and it kind of draws you in, and then you make choices about 
how you want to navigate the land, <clears throat> which was the brilliance of the original design of Disneyland. Um, of course, they deviated from that hub and spoke design. Um, but what they did do was, you know, create, there was always kind of a logic, uh, a logic to navigating yourself through the park. And it was because they created the, as you said, these changes in elevation where you could get a great overview of the land, kind of get, get your lay of the lay of the land from a higher elevation. And then it kind of beckoned you in. And then as you moved through it, you know, things were revealed and it had kind of this wonderful flow because the park was about exploration. That was the other thing. One of the, the, the high level principles that they were going, they wanted a park that was, um, you know, about, <clears throat> about, um, you know, this world travel and part of world travel, as anyone know, if you tra travel the world, part of it is exploring and the fun of, you know, making, sometimes you make that wrong left turn, the universe surprises you and something's there that, you know, you did, you didn't expect. And so they, they kind of took, took that approach to it. But um, I would say in that in that regard, Lou, as you said, the the elevation changes certainly makes it one of the more interesting parks to navigate your way through. Well, and talking about things like like concepts changing and 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 morphing a little bit, I think one of the more remarkable attractions and and instant instant classic attractions is the Voyage of Sinbad, where again the original concept changed. It was a lot of it was was a was was based on the stories the seven voyages of sinbad that we knew but then it sort of morphed about being more like small world in, ter in terms of tone and size and a little bit more you know japanese kawaii type type cute. Yeah. talk a little bit about the uh the, the genesis of the story and how sinbad and the immediately lovable chandu came to be <laughs> yeah um you know first off um I never criticize the work of any of my peers because first off, I think everybody sets out to do the best job they can. I think especially Imagineers, there's, a, there's a, no more passionate, devoted group of designers in the world, you know, and they, and that you always set out to try to create something great. But what, <clears throat> what we do in the theme parks for the most part is prototypical, hasn't been done before. Um, it may, maybe sometimes it's a, a variation of something that's been done before, but most cases, and especially in the case of TDS, where they were trying to create a whole new kind of park, a whole new kind of park experience. So they, they were trying, and I, I give them a lot of credit, you know, um, then they took some risks and tried some new, new things in that park. And they wanted to try, they wanted to create something that, that was, was going to have kind of the scale and the visual whimsy of it's a small world and but with with kind of the bit of the epic grandeur of pirates of the caribbean um and i thought that that's a bold concept but it, it's hard to pull off and in the end it just didn't resonate with the guests because they didn't quite know is this a cute little thing for kids or is it it was a little scary so it kind of found itself in kind of this this nether world, kind of in this gray area. And the guests, they they came off and they liked it. But I mean, you know, and OLC was great. Oregon Land Company owned the park. They were great about you know monitoring you know the <clears throat> popularity of rides and doing doing lots lots of you know um, surveys and such. 
and it always rated very low and it was there was and it was a very expensive attraction to do it's a huge show building with you know hundreds of animatronic figures and sets and special effects um <clears throat> so the management knew that there was some core there was the, the there was something there that we could work with they didn't necessarily want to you know tear it down and start over again um and the sinbad stories are interesting but what it lacked was that human connection. I think the, the little puppets and the way that the, the animatronic figures and the way they did it, it just, it didn't have that connection to the guests. So, the, so um, they asked us to go in and see if we could figure out how to make it a little more guest friendly. And so if you look at things like, if we said, okay, now we have a choice to make. Either do we try to make it more scary and more like pirates? Said, yeah, but visually it looks more like small world. So, what is it that makes Small World great? And the first thing we came with was a song, you know? The Sherman Brothers song is probably the, the stickiest song ever done. <laughs> you know? Just mentioning it, you're like the first two lines is gonna be in your head for the rest of the day, but that's the genius of it. And <clears throat> it creates a tone and a feeling for, for that attraction. So, so first was come up with a song and I'll talk a little bit more about the development of the music in a moment. Um, but we also wanted something, a device to connect the audience more with the story and, and also give Sinbad's character a little more, a little more depth. <clears throat> and so we came up with the sidekick, you know, in, in every Disney film, you know, the, like, like in Aladdin, he's got Abu, you know, they've, they've got many of them it gives a sidekick because it builds that relationship. Um, you see how they're, their um their friendship works and the how the and, and it's just something that people know they get it's it's like your most people have a pet a dog a cat you know a hamster <laughs> and that connect that connection that you have with with that pet so that immediately um and immediately creates empathy for the character too and so you feel for the character and um so we created this little Shandu, the little tiger, plus OLC liked it because you know, it's not a known IP, right? But the Japanese love everything cute. As you said earlier, the kawaii, if it's, it's cute. I mean, think about uh, Hello Kitty is this whole giant mega franchise IP based on just a cute little cat's face. There were no movies, there was no backstory, no books. It was just a cute little cat, Hello Kitty. Um, so they they love their, their mask. In fact, in Japan, even the police department has a cute mascot. So every, everywhere, so it was a natural there. We knew let's create this cute little this cute little um Shandu character. Um, and uh, I'm sure they've sold a million dollars worth of little Shandu plush at this point. <laughs> Um, and then, so, and then now let's get back to the song. So we wanted to create a song, something that had some, you know, some stickiness to it. And, um, we were fortunate because, um, uh, Alan Menken, who was the, wrote the music for Little Mermaid and wrote the music for Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast had a very, very close relationship with the company. Uh, and so we were able to get Alan Menken interested in doing the music. Um, of course, his partner, uh, Howard Ashman, the brilliant Howard Ashman, who had worked with him on Little Mermaid and Aladdin <clears throat> and Beauty and the Beast, uh, unfortunately had passed on. But he had a he had a young lyricist, this guy, Glenn Slater, who kind of was working with was working with him at that time. And Glenn, I thought he was a super creative guy. 
uh, and he came up with this idea of, you know, um, follow the compass of your heart, you know, and they came up with a little song that goes, goes with it. And I guess it, and then they had to work very closely with the Japanese um, interpreters to, to make it, make the flow of the words work right with the cadence of, of the music. I remember there was a lot of thought and uh, work done. So it, because we knew our audience, it would have more resonance if it, it worked in, in their language. Uh, but it was actually the Japanese, but you know, most of the things, most of the songs in the park um, have, still have some English lyric in them. We never, we never translated a hundred percent. So we kept, so it's part English and part Japanese, but definitely worked in a way that <clears throat> worked with the music and with the language. So it had, had a nice flow to it. And you're right. As somebody who does not speak Japanese and who loved the attraction, came off, bought his Shandu, and was trying to sing the song. Um, it does. It's one of those things that gets you know. It is. It is very small world like in, in its effect yeah. on you. Uh, thank you. Uh, um, I, I want to look again. I could spend forever in, in Tokyo, but I want to move over to the Disney Cruise Line a little bit because you were also tasked with helping to reimagine the original ship, the Disney magic. Again, it's like going into Disney. It's like being asked to reimagine Disneyland, take this original and authentic. What was the, the task you were given given and how did you approach it? Like, how do you make what was really at the time, the best of the best, I believe in the cruise industry. How do you make that even better uh, while retaining the, those important elements and, and really the essence of what the magic was? Well, you just nailed it. You just did. That was understanding what the essence of the, or what, what made the essence of the, the Disney cruise line. What were those things that made it work? And I was actually fortunate enough to work on the original Magic and Wonder uh, back in the middle 90s. Um, at the time, um, the design was actually being led by the, um, there was a group called Disney Development Company, who was more of the real estate arm of the of the Walt Disney Company. They would develop real estate projects and <clears throat> and were doing most of the hotels and resorts. and And they thought that the cruise lines felt, you know, fell more under the, you know, was more like a resort. In the end, what they discovered, you know, it it really had to have the the Disney theme park storytelling as part of its its DNA. And um, they were pretty well into the design process when they brought WDI in. And I was, I was part of the team. I wasn't leading the team at the time. I was just one, one of the designers. And it was actually Eric Jacobson at WDI. Uh, another, another tip of the hat to a guy who I so enjoyed working with. Eric was such a great, great leader and, and always had fun. He made his teams uh, enjoy, always enjoyable to be on, but um so we we were kind of tasked with with looking at the ship and bringing some of the Disney IP, some of the Disney DNA into the ship. Um, <clears throat> in the defense of Disney Development Company, their task, you know, that from a business standpoint, um, at that point in the cruise industry, there was no family cruise line. Um, there was one. It was called I think it was called the Big Red Boat, and they had actually licensed Disney characters. Um, and actually, it was kind of pathetic. In fact, early on in my assignment for <clears throat> working on the the the, the Disney Magic, um, they gave me the assignment to be in charge of designing the kids' areas. 
So they sent me and my, uh, and my family, my, my wife at the time, and my daughter, I think she was probably only seven or eight, uh, on the big red boat to kind of, and we were, in fact, my, my daughter, she, she jokes, she goes, dad, we're going to be spies, right? <laughs> so I brought home those, those Groucho glasses with the nose. And the thing. I go, yeah, we have to wear these the entire time we're on the ship. because We're going to be spies. <laughs> um, but uh, it was pretty pathetic. You know, they had taken what was the corner of one of the casinos and turned it into the kids area by putting some little tykes player play equipment in there and and slapping some characters on the wall but um and so uh so we i'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> so so we we knew we knew we had we we had to do way we didn't have to work hard to do better but we wanted to do way better so that so the wdi team came on and we were looking throughout the whole ship at where we could infuse it with some more disney stuff because as i said the the um the development team they were concerned because there were no disney there were no family cruises at the time um the primary audiences for cruise were either young adults or very old people um and they were afraid of alienating that audience they knew from a business standpoint they had to, they had to create something put something out into the marketplace that was kind of guaranteed to address the the current cruising market but they also knew they had to break ground and, and develop something that was going to be more family oriented because when people see the name disney it's synonymous with family entertainment um and i like i remember one of the early designs that <clears throat> that they had done for the kids area um were um devoid of any disney ip and um and I remember sitting and they, they brought me into an early, uh, an early review with Michael Eisner and they were presenting what, what was done for the kids areas. And he, and it was Michael Eisner who was the CEO at the time. And Michael Eisner says, he goes, where's the Disney? He said, this is a Disney cruise. He goes, it says, especially in the, the kids areas. So <clears throat> it was at that point then that I got, that just, that just gave me the big green light to move forward with, you know, and especially at that time, um, I think Toy Story had just come out. So we did like a little Buzz Lightyear moment. Um, the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids films had just come out. So we wanted to do kind of this little science area. So we themed it after Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and of course, Mickey and Minnie. Uh, so those initial, those original uh, kids areas were kind of a, kind of a melting pot of a variety of, of Disney IP with no, you know, one central theme. That tied them all together. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So then, when it came time, I was actually given the assignment. Um, I, I took over the work that was started by Wing Chow on the Disney um, Dream and Fantasy. And the on the Dream, a lot of work had already been done in terms of the design, using a lot of great, um, a lot of great designers that had worked on the original ships, um, and um, and as we, as you said a moment ago, I mean, they, they knew that they, that there was an expectation, you know, that guests had already come to love the Disney cruise line, but then how can we take these new ships and kind of bring them to the next level? And I think we did, we did two things it was <clears throat> one taking things and I'll use the example of animators palette, which was probably one of the, the, the most Disney experiences on the, the magic and the wonder. You know, and they were 
they were wonder, and, and those were also the product of Walt Disney Imagineering on those ships. We came up with with those concepts, not me personally, but our the team did, and um, and it was a magical experience. You got in, you got to have your meal, and you were surrounded. It was a completely black and white, you know, cartoon world that you were in. And then through the course of the dinner, the 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 walls change color, it comes to life. The color comes to life. The static black and white pictures turn into color animation on the walls. And even I thought the, the touch of brilliance was the waiter's vests and their outfits that were black and white become color at the end too. Um, I thought that was a, a great one. <clears throat> so it's like, so how do, how do you top that? And I remember they were um, this idea of creating, you know, uh, an animation studio, but taking it one step further and you could be an animator. And they came up with this great technology, as you know, uh, that allows the guests to draw on a placemat and that drawing, no matter how crude or how developed, actually gets to become a piece of animation that you see up on the screens. And not only does it come to life and move and dance, it comes to life and moves and dance with Disney characters. What could be better than that? Um, so I think that that was that's a that's a great example of taking something that was very Disney is something great, but then what was that next level of technology? What was that next level of guest engagement that just took it, you know, over the top? Well, and that's and we definitely tried- something that uh, that I would love to chat with you more about. I, I've come to realize, Joe, that we cannot cover everything that we need to in just two seconds. <laughs> I think you just need to be a recurring guest and come on every few weeks because I want to talk to you about, you know, technology and immersion and, and interactive elements. And we're going to tease maybe coming back and talking more about the Muppets in the park as somebody who grew up loving the Muppets. Um okay. I, and I got just, just I that was like another dream come true for me because you know I never got to meet Walt Disney you know uh, I was fortunate enough to work with and be taught by the gentleman that worked directly with Walt um, but I would say my my second childhood hero second to Walt was Jim Henson and and because of Disney I got to meet Jim Henson and I got to work with Jim Henson and you know have that moment but unfortunately he passed away not long after we we started our, our work with him, but boy, that, that was another, you know, not only childhood dream life, you know, lifetime dream come true. Yeah. Again, in terms of, of masterful storytellers who understood and really created this incredible legacy of, of wholesome family entertainment that again can be enjoyed by everyone. Uh, so, uh, so you know what, Joe, I will wrap up not with the, what's the one thing you brought up Walt Disney, but not, I'm not going to ask you the, what's the one thing you would ask Walt. I would instead say, if you had the opportunity to show Walt something, right? There's so much that I think you probably personally mm-hmm. are proud of that you have helped touch and create as well as the company as a whole. If you had an opportunity to show Walt or take him somewhere in, in one of the parks, what would you show him and why? You know, I think that's a pretty easy one. Um, I would definitely take him to Anaheim and I would show him Mickey's Toontown because um, talk about an incredible honor, not only to be able to design or be in charge of the design of a whole new land for Disneyland, but it's the land where Mickey Mouse lives. You know, Mickey, the character that Walt created on that train traveling 
you know, to LA and the, the character that's probably the most known and beloved character in the world. And I got to tell you, the gravity of that, it, it, that was a huge, I, I think we talked a little bit about this last time, you know, we were a bunch of naive kids working on that, that project, but every so often I would lay in bed and go, oh my God, you know, we're designing Mickey's house. We're designing the world where Mickey lives. So, I, <clears throat> and I think we, you know, we were trying to be so true and honest to those characters and their personalities. And because I was able to use the training from Walt's, you know, his nine old men, the, the artists that worked directly with him, um, I would go, gee, Walt, thanks for all you, you taught them. And thanks for all they taught me. And I, I hope, I hope I did a good job that we did a good job at, you know, taking all that learning and applying it and creating something that's true and honest to who Mickey is and what he stands for. And, you know, hopefully stands the testament of time, like everything else that you so brilliantly did. You know, we have thought about that question. I have talked about that question on the show before, and we've heard answers that include but are not limited to, well, of course you show him Epcot Center or you show him where Magic Kingdom and it will show him Disneyland today or show him Flight of Passage because of technology. But the way you describe and, and your reason why you would show him Toontown not only made the light go off and makes perfect sense, but I felt myself almost getting a little choked up. As, as you told it, because as you know, it is all about uh, emotion. And I think I said this to you last time, Joe. I, I think um, I think Walt would be very proud of you and what you have not only helped contribute to, but what you have helped lead in terms of your time at both animation and at Imagineering. Uh, I'm not kidding when I said I would love to have you back again because I know you have so many stories to tell. But on behalf of myself and everyone who has enjoyed not just our conversation, but the joy that you have brought us um, on screen and in the parks. My heartfelt thanks. Oh, you know what? It's, it's been, a, a, first, I've so enjoyed talking with you, Lou, you, and, and, and you're a great interviewer. Um, and um, like I've said in the past, it was really just, I feel honored and privileged to have been able to do the things I was able to do and, and, Honored and privileged to work with all the great, incredibly talented Imagineers that I got to work with and all the people I met along the way and a tip a hat to all of them. And, and, I, and if, I, if I didn't mention your name or somebody's name, I, I forgot along the way. No, no, I, I, your work was brilliant and I thank you for being a part of it. And, and again, thank you, Lewis. This was great. And let's look, I look forward to the next time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Okay. And, Happy holidays, Lou. Joe, thank you again. I appreciate you squeezing us in today. You are brilliant. Um, and again, I, I really, really, just on a personal level, uh, I really enjoyed talking with you. Oh, uh, thank you so much, Lou. Thank you. Again, be, be safe. Have a great you too.
time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World history or see how well you pay attention to the details and what you see, hear, maybe taste or remember. If you think you know the answer, you can enter for a chance to win a Disney prize package. Before we get to this week's question, we're going to go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week I took you over to Liberty Square in Magic Kingdom, and I asked you to tell me who the three owners of the three different stores that collectively make up Ye Old Christmas Shop are. Again, according to story, there are three separate shops which are connected that make up this store, and they are Keppel, the tailor, Ichabod Crane, who owns the music shop, and Woodwright is the woodcarver. And you can actually hear the entire backstory about this shop and its evolution from what it was to what it is now by listening to my audio tour of Liberty Square, which you can find at the WW Radio shop at www.radio.com. Still just $10. And I want to thank everyone who answered, got this one correct, or was at least incredibly creative with their answer. And last week's winner, randomly selected, is Lloyd Sinicola. So, Lloyd, congratulations. I will get your prize package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay. Because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So we'll continue on with the holiday theme and the holiday season because I want you to tell me where in Walt Disney World have you heard this phrase? Cheer up, Jane. Maybe we'll all be together by next Christmas. That's it. Just tell me where in Walt Disney World you can or could hear that quote. Go to www.radio.com, click on this week's podcast, Use the online form there. Again, you're going to play for a copy of my brand new Disney interviews book, my 102 Ways to Save Money for Not Walt Disney World book, and all seven of my virtual audio walking tours of Magic Kingdom, all of which, by the way, you can find at www.radio.com. Contest runs until Sunday, January 3rd at 11.59 p.m. Eastern. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in this and every week. If you enjoyed my conversation with Joe this and last week, please come over and let us know over in the Facebook group. Also, please help spread the word. Tell a friend and share a link to this week's episode. Also, if you like the interview, please check out my new book, The Disney Interviews, Volume 1, a collection of one-on-one conversations with Imagineers, artists, actors, musicians, magic makers, and mouseketeers who worked for and with Walt and the Walt Disney Company in the creation of the parks, movies and television or were instrumental in helping to preserve his legacy and history people like julie andrews marty sklar alice davis dave smith charles ridgeway richard sherman and more you can find out more and get a direct link to purchase on amazon on kindle or paperback by going to disneyinterviews.com i want to thank some of the new and longtime members of the ww radio nation family including jordan lively marty raimondo fred abley from get me coding Justin, Lori Brandon, the entire McNamara family, Tim, just Tim, like Cher, and Nick Slate. If you want to not only help the show, but get exclusive rewards every month, including scavenger hunts, trivia quests, we have a private Facebook group, magic band covers, logo gear, monthly care packages from Walt Disney World, exclusive live video group calls, and more, including a bunch of new rewards coming at the beginning of the year please visit www.radio.com slash support. It's completely optional. Starts at as little as a dollar a month, but it's a great way for you to help show your support 
for WW Radio. And please don't forget that a portion of the proceeds of your optional contribution goes to our Dream Team project to directly benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America because of and thanks to you. We've raised more than $350,000 for Make-A-Wish. Again, to learn more and join, visit www.radio.com slash support. If you have a question you'd like me to answer on the show, you can email me, lou at www.radio.com or call the voicemail. Be heard on the air with a question, a comment, or a hello from the parks at 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WDW1. You can also connect with me directly on social. I am at Lou Mangello on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, and LinkedIn. Also, be sure to like the WDW Radio page on Facebook so you don't miss a thing at facebook.com slash Radio. Thanks, as always, to MEI and Mouse Fan Travel, my official and recommended travel provider for almost 15 years for all of your vacation planning needs, whether you're going to a Disney destination or anywhere on this beautiful planet of ours. You can get a free, no-obligation quote and the exceptional levels of personal service that come at no cost to you, which is their hallmark, by visiting them at mousefantravel.com. And because you have helped me and allowed me to turn what I love into what I do, I want to help you do the same. So if you're trying to make a living following your dreams, but maybe feel a little lost or isolated or alone as a solopreneur or don't know how to make that shift from hobbyist to serious entrepreneur, want to build a community and turn your passion into your profession, I'd love to try and help you either through one-on-one mentoring or I'm about to launch two new mastermind groups every Tuesday night beginning this January. For more information, you can visit loumangelo.com and click on the coaching tab there or just reach out to me directly, lou at www.radio.com. If you have a question, find out how I might be able to help you there. And as always, my friend, and you are my friend, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tweet out that you're listening. Share a link on Facebook or Pinterest or anywhere you like. And if you can, take just a couple of seconds to rate and review the show over an Apple podcast. It's incredibly helpful. Takes just a couple of seconds. I want to thank some recent reviewers like GZAV1212, who says it's a way to experience Disney with friends. I've become part of of the WW Radio family in the past few months. I love Lou's positivity and Disney knowledge. It's more than a podcast. It's a way of life. Start listening. Join the clubhouse on Facebook. I feel like I'm sitting at the desk with my friends listening to a Disney debate when I tune in. Hashtag choose the good. And Kane Lee with lots of ease from Australia says I've just started listening to Lou and friends only recently, but I haven't been able to stop. I'm a huge Disney nut and WW Radio is helping fill the void until my next visit. And Anachronism22 from Canada says the podcast brings joy, inspiration, and information to Disney fans, planners, and kids at heart. Thank you, Lou, for the enthusiasm and wonderful content. Accompany me on long runs, car rides, and any other time I get to tune in. You're simply the best. Well, Anachronism, Kane Lee with lots of ease, GZAV1212. Thank you very much again. Just search for WW Radio in Apple Podcasts or go to www.radio.com slash iTunes for a link and instructions. Finally, most importantly, we have reached the end, maybe thankfully, of 2022 as we are about to turn the page to a new year, a new chapter, and new opportunities. I want to say thank you. I know how difficult this year has been for you probably on many different levels. And while I may not certainly know the specifics, I understand that this year has been unlike any other, but I hope that the show and the community and the Facebook lives on Wednesday night have been an outlet for you, have been a positive light and a source of even a small amount 
of joy and, and maybe a respite from some of the things that have been going on out in real life. I hope it has been helpful to you in some small way, much as the ability to do this and share this with you is an incredible gift to me. And despite everything that has happened this year, I am incredibly grateful to you and for you, for the opportunity, for your time, for your friendship, for your incredible unwavering support. And if there's some way that I can help you and repay that gift and that favor, I mean it when I say to please reach out to me and let me know. I have incredible hope and faith and belief that this new year will bring new opportunity, new focus, and I hope for you that it really will be your best year ever. I promise you that I have been working on and will reveal soon some things that I have been planning and doing to try and make the show better, the community better, the Facebook lives better on Wednesday night. Be sure and tune in after the first of the year to see exactly what I'm talking about. And if you have any suggestions, remember, this show, this community is for, by, and with you. So please let me know. You can post in the Facebook group, again, at www.radio.com slash clubhouse, or just email me directly, lou at www.radio.com. I really want to do everything I can to help you, to serve you, to make your day better, and to be a little bit of a bright light in your day and week. I hope that you had or are continuing to have a wonderful holiday, that you choose the good now more than ever, that you be the good for other people, and that you have a happy, healthy, safe, yes, maybe even delicious New Year, and awake on New Year's Day with a renewed sense of hope, purpose, and excitement. And as they used to say back in the Space Mountain song, here's to the future, and you, Happy New Year. I love you. I appreciate you. So until next time and next year, see ya. Hey, Lou. This is Michael Candace from Westport, Massachusetts. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. So uh, how do we do this? Who, who talks first? Do you talk first? Do I talk? Of course, I talk first. This is a voicemail. Uh, just finished up listening to this week's show, which was wonderful as always. Uh, always brings a smile to my face. So on the topic of favorite celebrity cameo, um, here's mine. Uh, picture at 1990, Epcot Center. Um, my dad took me at the age of 13 and my sister at the age of nine. Uh, my parents were divorced and they, he took us to, uh, to Disney World to, uh, to have some fun time with dad. And we're there in the Wonders of Life Pavilion and we see the making of me with Martin Short. And Dad looks at me and says, uh, you know, your mom wants me to uh, talk to you about some things. You get to an age. So we're going to go watch this movie. So we go in, and uh, as you can expect, at 13, it's a little cringeworthy to be there with uh, a parental figure uh, watching that topic. And uh, we finish it up, and we walk out. And Dad looks at me and says, uh, do you have any questions? I said, nope. He said, okay, let's go ride body horse. Um, so Dad, Dad passed uh, three short years later. And, uh, but I'll always have that memory. And Martin Short is, uh, clearly my, my favorite celebrity cameo because of that. I'm, uh, a dad now myself. And, uh, coming up, uh, I'm sure much quicker than I would hope. Uh, I'll have to have that talk with my boy. And I just wish that, uh, Martin Short and the making of me was available to me to have that talk. Um, on another note, I just wanted to say thank you, uh, to you and to Becky and to Tim Foster for 
always putting out that positivity. Uh, this has been a tough year for everybody. A lot of negativity out there, man, and it's very easy to feed into it and to get consumed by it. And you are a beacon of light every week uh, and every day in our community. And it is very much appreciated. Um, choosing the good isn't always the easy thing, but uh, it does feel good when you do it. And I just wanted to say thank you for somebody that uh, most of us don't ever get the opportunity to interact with uh, in person. The fact that uh, we feel that we are your friend uh, is amazing. Just by hearing those, you know, hearing your voice coming through the speakers or seeing you on a computer screen, you are a special dude, and uh, I appreciate you. So uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, here's to a healthy and fun 2021, and uh, thank you again, Lou. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Hey, Lou, this is Chloe Mayhew from Ridgeway, Virginia. It is Christmas Day, so Merry Christmas from Epcot's World Showcase. Don't know if you can hear the music in the background, but it's evening time. I'm walking around World Showcase just enjoying this very cold day. But just want to say Merry Christmas to to you and your family, and thank you for all you do to just bring joy and happiness to all of our lives and all of our days, especially this long stretch when a lot of us haven't been able to be at the parks. Um, last time I was at the parks was last Christmas, and had plans to go a couple times this year, but, you know, COVID. But just thank you so much for the joy and just the happiness that you, you bring to all of us every day. Um, it is a really cold day here in World Showcase, but it is beautiful. Just really enjoyed snacking around the world and just really enjoying celebrating with all of the people from all around the country. And uh, just Merry Christmas to everybody in the WDW Radio family, and thanks for all you do. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Hey, Lou. This is Alex Spires calling from, well, I used to be calling from South Georgia, but me and my husband, we have recently moved to Monroe, Louisiana, and we are driving back home from a wonderful week. I'm spending time with family for Christmas, and I wanted to call the voicemail and just say I hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas season and um, Happy New Year. Hope everyone has a Happy New Year. I know some people weren't able to be with family this year, and my heart's are just with everybody. Um, you know, hope everybody stays safe, stay well, and we'll see you in 2021. Take care. Bye-bye. One song I've never performed in public before, ever. It's a song just for you, Japanese D23 fans. From the Sinbad ride.
Life is the greatest adventure. There is no map, there's no chart. But if you seek life's great treasures, follow the c o 